following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Okay, so continuationists, cessationists, and counseling. Why are you here? <laughs> That's, I thought for sure that if I gave that title that I'd have nobody here and I get to go home early. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for such a, a, a good day, blessed day. Thank you for your kindness to us, and we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would honor your Son and the work of your Spirit in this, uh, in this hour. We pray for your help. Father, we really are uh, dependent on you to uh, understand these things, and we pray that you would give us not only a spiritual understanding, but we pray that you would give us uh, charitable hearts and discerning hearts. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, when, when Craig contacted me and we were kicking around some various ideas for some workshops, there are sort of some standard things that, that um, you know, do something on adoption, of course, uh, you know, and then I had a couple of uh, more theological ideas that I wanted to kind of work out on how they apply to counseling. So last night we did the already and the not yet and how it relates to counseling. And then I thought, well, you know, with all of the emphasis on, um, you know, MacArthur's conference, Strange Fire and all that, it would be really interesting and kind of fun to look at the way that the two different perspectives on continuationists and cessationists look at the issue of counseling. And so what I want you to do is, um, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but I, I put this chart together a while ago. And um, the, the thing is, is we're going to be using the terminology of a continuationist and a cessationist. But what you have to understand is that this is not just two different categories, two different perspectives. There, there's a spectrum that is on these issues. And out of fairness, we have to kind of understand the spectrum because we don't want to... Uh, one of the tendencies that we sometimes have is we will um, look at a, quote, group and then pigeonhole them that this is what they believe, and then it's usually the extreme position, all right? And we don't like it when people do that with us, and so we shouldn't like it, uh, we shouldn't do that to other people. So on, on your uh, chart there, you have the continuationist, and so I have that divided into two, uh, two categories, the full and the partial. Um, so on such questions as, are there living apostles today, apostolic succession, the full continuationist says yes. Um, continuing authoritative divine revelation, the full continuationist obviously has to say yes, um, which then all the rest are no-brainers, charismatic gifts such as prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healings, miracles, demonic activity, authority over demons, yes, 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 yes. Uh, so who would believe such things? Well, um, 
I put Roman Catholic Church because of their insistence on living apostles today and continuing authoritative divine revelation. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints because of their emphasis on continuing revelation. See, this is, ends up being the, the, the key thing. Continuing revelation and continuing apostolic ministry. All right. Um, and so and then there would be some um, extreme Pentecostals. And I want to clarify that we're talking about extreme. Uh, so I was in uh, China. Um, this I was up in Shanghai. And I'm teaching a class on on preaching. And during one of the breaks, there's a group of guys, about six guys, and they're all huddled around a computer. And my translator, friend of mine, Larry Pan, and I go over and Larry asks him, of course, in Chinese, what are you guys doing? And they say, well, we're watching a video of, um, of Peter Wagner. And Peter Wagner is a part of the apostolic renewal movement. And he was appointing apostles over churches in China. That's what the video was. So, so when I say extreme, I, I, what I want to say is I understand that not everybody holds to these things, but the idea of continuing apostles, capital A apostles, and continuing revelation is what would constitute a person that would be a full continuationist. Now, the other category is partial. So, uh, partial uh, continuationists would say, you know what, there, there, is, there are no longer capital A apostles today. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of somebody, for instance, someone like Wayne Grudem, that I think, I mean, how many of you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology? How many were blessed by it? Okay, I mean, uh, it's, it's really terrific stuff. He would be a continuationist, but he wouldn't see uh, capital A apostles as part of the church anymore. They were part of the foundation, Acts or Ephesians 2.20. Um, continuing authoritative divine revelation, and the answer would be, for the partial continuations, no. Um, you, you have continuing revelation, but it's not at the same level of Holy Scripture. Uh, in other words, the canon is closed, and the closed canon is the authoritative divine revelation. Everything else is subordinate to that. Um, continuing gifts, uh, prophecy, yes. And there would be qualifications about what that prophecy looks like. Uh, tongues interpretation, yes. Healings, um, uh, oftentimes uh, this perspective would, would say, well, these are um, gifts that are not just exercised at will, so you don't just have somebody walking around and, and just touching people and healing them, but God does give gifts of healing today, and there may be instruments that are gifted, human instruments that are gifted in this way. Um, miracles, yes, but again, according to God's sovereign will. Um, demonic activity, authority over demons, yes. So that would be, at least in America, the mainstream type continuationist perspective. All right. Um, then you go over to the cessationist. And then notice you've got the two bars and um, there's a continuum. And 
I want to start with the full cessationist in the right-hand column. Uh, no apostolic ministry, because it was foundational. Uh, no continuing revelation, closed canon. Uh, no prophecy, no tongues, no healing, no miracles, no demonic activity. That's, that's the actual extreme position of a cessationist. So, for instance, um, uh, the name Sam Storms. Okay, Sam is a is a, a terrific scholar, terrific Jonathan Edwards scholar, and Sam is actually what he would say. I am a uh, amillennial, complementarian, Calvinist, uh, charismatic. <laughs> okay, that's a weird combination, if you ask me, but it's it's his combination. The funny thing is, is. Back in the late 1970s, Sam, as a graduate of Dallas Seminary and a minister at Believer's Chapel, wrote a book on divine healing and basically says, God doesn't heal today. Now, he's actually changed his position completely, but you have to understand that when we're talking about cessationists, there are, there's a group that are uh, absolutely uh, committed to the idea of no divine healing, um, no miracles. There's providence, of course, but no miracles. And, uh, and in fact, they would even argue, as uh, I've heard some, that there is no demonic activity today in the sense of, of having people demon-possessed and stuff like that. Now, that brings us to the partial cessationist. So you see, this is why we have to understand the spectrum. So the partial cessationist says, of course, well, no living apostles, no continuing authoritative divine revelation. And then they might say something like this. Um, well, charismatic gifts continuing, well, it's not normative for today, but we don't want to say that it absolutely does not happen. In other words, we don't want to actually um, uh, restrict what God can and cannot do, especially in, in the mission field and things like that. Um, what about prophecy? Well, they would say, well, it's not prophecy like it would be defined over here, but the Spirit of God certainly does come and illuminate our hearts and our minds in a supernatural way. Right? Don't want to minimize that. Uh, tongues, interpretation, not normative. Uh, healings, yes. But again, this is God's sovereign will. Uh, miracles, yes. Uh, demonic activity, yes. Um, uh, usually emphasizes truth encounters versus power encounters. And so this is the spectrum. And um, I'm not going to tell you where I am. So hopefully you know where you are. Now, <clears throat> how do these perspectives actually work themselves out in counseling? Well, I, what I want to do is I want to give you errors on both sides. And the errors on both sides, in a sense, are errors that represent more of the extremes. Okay, So, continuationist errors, so people that believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are in full operation, um, there are things like uh, prophetic counseling. Out of curiosity, have you ever heard of prophetic counseling? Okay. There is an entire movement of prophetic counseling. And... <clears throat> I just happen to 
bring some information about a prophetic counseling ministry. And um, let me just read, this is from their website, an in-depth personal prophetic experience, a one-on-one connection to a veteran prophet. That's, that's important because you don't want to get a novice prophet. You need a veteran prophet. That is a rare opportunity. You may schedule prophetic counseling using the convenient calendar below. This is one of those rare times that you have an opportunity to connect to a veteran prophet with a powerful anointing. Getting one-on-one time with a seasoned prophetic ministry is an invaluable opportunity. Many visitors request personal conversation time with Prophets Ruffs and Kitty. They are, in fact, available on limited basis for one-on-one prophetic counseling. What is prophetic counseling? Prophetic counseling is much like personal uh, prophecy, only more in-depth. It's more intense. It's more interactive. You get to ask questions and share your heart in a live phone session and receive back the prophetic insight and utterance of God for your life from our prophets. And uh, then, of course, they tell you how long the sessions last, you know, because obviously you have to have some sort of time limitation on prophetic counseling. So you get 30 minutes, and they appreciate, of course, a donation for $200. Now, that's crazy, that's, but I, I will tell you what. There will be people that have crises in their life, and they will go, and they will call, and they'll make an appointment. All right? It's just... Um, another continuationist type error seen in counseling would be in um, deliverance models of counseling. Deliverance models of counseling, of course, are are based on the idea that your fundamental problem is not uh, remaining sin in your heart. Your fundamental problem is what? Well, a demon, right? Uh, Spirits. Um, And so this, and and again, you can look up deliverance counseling. And I'll tell you, one of the person who has made this uh, almost mainstream is Neil Anderson. And some of his work in terms of bondage breaking, and not not everything he says is is bad or aberrant, but there is this emphasis on that the demonic is is fundamentally what is wrong with me, and therefore I need what I need is not to um, have the means of grace brought to bear by the word of God and and learn obedience and so forth. What I need is actually to be delivered from whatever demon is 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 harassing me, troubling me. Um, and that's the counseling, is, is actual just deliverance. Um, when I was in, in Zambia um, in January, uh, you talk about a lot of crazy teaching. Uh, by the way, the charismatic movement in Zambia is 99.9% word of faith stuff. Okay, And... <clears throat> Um, I mean, here are people living in abject poverty in these compounds, buying in hook, hook, line, and sinker to the Word of Faith movement. Okay? It's actually sad. It's tragic. But there's so much syncretism, sort of mixing together um, uh, Christianity and then, then just tribal, pagan superstition. 
And there was a teaching, very, very prevalent, called um, Spirit Husband, Spirit Wife. And what, what it was is, um, so let's say you have a husband who is just a serial adulterer. Uh, what you need to do is you need to go to the man of God, and the man of God can discern whether or not he has a spirit wife who is continually leading him into these adulterous relationships. Or let's say a couple is barren, um, the man of God can then decide, discern whether or not it's the spirit husband or the spirit wife that's the infertile one and then of course you know what the the um, the remedy is of course some sort of power encounter some sort of deliverance that's supposed to happen that sets that person free and so let's say you have a nagging wife it may be that she that there is a spirit wife that is continually provoking her into being a nagging wife and so the man of god can actually deliver her from that spirit wife and then she'll be free from her from her sin now um all of that is just pure i mean i think it's insanity right it finds no place in 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 scripture but when when we think about the errors um it's kind of easy to look at those and go wow that stuff is just crazy um if if i'm struggling with greed it's not because i have a demon that i need to be delivered from it's because i have a sinful heart that has uh, uh erected this idol of greed and i'm living for it and i need to learn to actually have the word of god brought to bear in my life in such a way that the spirit of god comes and helps me to obey right but we can fall into errors, we, generally speaking, on the cessationist side. I just tip my hand. So what are some cessationist errors? Our errors are more subtle. Um, they, uh, they are more, um, they're more respectable errors. But there could be the error of what we might just call our practice, not matching our doctrine. What I mean by that is we say confessionally that we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we say we believe actually in the power of God's Word, but when it comes to practice, we may actually just sometimes go into a session and just sort of just rely on our own techniques, our own abilities, our own skills, and have a very, in a sense, very clinical approach to the way that we're dealing with somebody. And, and I'll tell you, in a conference like this, that's probably one of the things that we have to watch out for because you, you learn scripture, you get the notes, you, and, and it can become easy to think that what this really is all about is the proper technique and the proper mechanisms applied in the proper way to produce the proper results. And the fact is, is that it can be reduced to a, a, a pure formalism and a mechanicalism and, um, and, and be void of the very things that we say we believe in and stand on. So we believe in the power of God's word. We believe actually in the supernatural power of God's word, right? 
That's what, we, that's what we say we believe. And yet, how often, how often do even those who want to practice biblical counseling, in a sense, kind of resort to a self-sufficiency? So when Paul talks about who's adequate for these things, there is this very subtle, well, I am. That is a kind of error that we are prone to. To make. Let me just give a couple of others, um, and, and all these overlap, of course. Um, <laughs> we can become very cerebral in our approach to counseling, so that as we we sit there, what we are going to focus on is um, is simply the mind, right? Um, you're not thinking correctly, or you just focus on the will. You're not acting correctly. Um, and so then w- the way that we see the remedy is if we can just get you to think the right thoughts then you can then do the right things. If I can just get you to make the right decisions. And, um, you know, when, when Nuthetic Counseling first started, one of the, um, one of the criticisms uh, about Jay Adams was that he was a behaviorist. Why? Well, because a person that that may not understand looks at it and says, well, all you're trying to do is just change the way a person thinks, change the way they act, and you're trying to do it in in ways where you're just, um, uh, in a sense, retraining habits and, and so forth. And so sometimes we can have a very, very, very cerebral uh, approach. And I would just remind you, taking off of what Vody was talking about earlier, when that counselee actually comes in to sit down and talk to you, that's actually spiritual warfare right there. Spiritual warfare is going on. This is not just, this is never just simply a cerebral exercise. This is never just an academic exercise. This is never just uh, uh, an issue of having the proper uh, uh, Bible verses um, to apply so that you've got your little quick reference guide. I'm all in favor of quick reference guides, all right? But you've got your little quick reference guide, and you go, okay, well, this is the problem, this is the answer, and this is what you need to do. And it can become very, very cerebral, and we can, um, in a sense, become reductionistic and become very mechanical and formulaical in our approaches, and so we end up reducing our approach to what could be put on a flow chart. person says this, then you say that. If they go to that, then you do that passage. And I want to just suggest to you that that ultimately doesn't help anybody. Now, in some ways, these, these two sets of errors, the continuationist and the cessationist, these two errors are, are, are very Corinthian-type errors. The Corinthians were absolutely enamored with power and Sophia, wisdom, knowledge. And sometimes, in a sense, we can reduce these errors to uh, those very simple categories. You know, oh, power. Well, that, that, that fits really nicely into, you know, let's cast out demons, let's do this kind of stuff. Or, I want wisdom. I want sophisticated intellectual knowledge. And um, the fact is, is that just like the Corinthians, we can forget that... True power 
and true wisdom are found only in the message of the cross. Right? Okay, so what, what do we actually need? And I, I'm not, you know, if you're a continuationist, I'm not interested in trying to persuade you to change your view. Um, if you're counseling people and you want to try to cast out demons, I would persuade, try to persuade you not to do that. Um, but what I want us to say, say is that we all have, uh, no matter what position you're, you're coming from, there is a common ground that we should all fully embrace and agree on, and that is what I would call a theology of both word and spirit. Right? A theology of word and spirit. So it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a continuationist, a cessationist. Um, th- the fact is, is that we believe wholeheartedly in both word and spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, of course, the active agent that has inspired the Holy Scriptures. Right? So, no prophecy of, uh, of Scripture uh, has ever come about by one's own origination, but men of old were ca- spoke by God, being carried by the Holy Spirit. So, what we have in this God-breathed book is actually Spirit-inspired. Um, when, when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about words that have been breathed out by God. That's the idea of theopneustos, breathed out. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, the Spirit of God has actually worked in such a way. I mean, think about this. This is our doctrine of Scripture. Verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal the very words, plenary, all of the words of Scripture. We're not saying that God inspired good thoughts for the prophets. We're not saying that God inspired the concepts. We're saying God inspired the very words, the very grammar, the very syntax, the very paragraphs, the very units, the very discourse, the entire thing, from beginning to end, to the smallest jot and tittle, to the overall discourse. God actually inspired it in such a way so as not to... Not to uh, minimize or or eclipse the human author, but to so superintend the human author that what the product is is an inspired revelation, self-disclosure of Almighty God, which is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, wholly sufficient for faith and life. If you believe that, you believe in an absolutely supernatural book. Okay, right? (laughs) That's amazing to me. There are times, you know, I'm reading through 2 Kings right now in my devotions. And there are times when you just go, wow, this is crazy. Right? Axe heads floating. Right? You're like, this is so, this is so crazy. And yet, real history, inspired history infallibly recorded for us so that we have the whole counsel of God. How do we get that? By the Holy Spirit, right? So let me just say the Holy Spirit is not the sole domain and property of charismatics, right? (laughs) He belongs to 
all Christians. And so, the Word and the Spirit are actually inextricably tied together. The Word and Spirit work together in such a way as, as it were, hand in glove, right? Um, And so the Spirit, and and this is where we need to be absolutely, as I was saying earlier this afternoon, we need to be absolutely committed to the fact that the Spirit loves to work in and through the Christ-centered Scriptures, And so, when Paul uh, is writing to the Thessalonians, he says to them that when his gospel came to them, it came to them how? In full conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Then he says, and this is this text is here for you, in um, in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, Paul says, We give thanks to God for you always, brethren, for when you received from us the word, you received it for what it really is, not the word of men, but the word of God, which does its work in you who believe, right? And so here, Paul is um, absolutely committed to this idea that the word comes, the word comes in the power of the spirit, the spirit is the one who actually illuminates energizes and uses the word to produce that which he sends it forth. And um, let me just make one more point about the the word and the spirit being inextricably tied together. Um, I'd love to do something more extended on this, but you have Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, right? So don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, right? And then he, then Paul gives a series of um, participles that actually show, I think they're participles of result, showing what the spirit-filled life looks like, what it results in, all right? Now, <clears throat> when you think about that, be filled with the spirit, there's actually a parallel passage in Paul in Colossians 3.16, which is... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then we have a series of result participles that are almost exactly the same of what he says is the result of being filled with the Spirit. So for Paul, the idea of being filled with the Spirit or being, as it were, controlled by the Spirit is is virtually synonymous with or analogous with the idea of the Word of Christ actually dwelling in us. Again, Word and Spirit being inextricably bound together. So I would argue that a a wordless Christian, a Bible-less Christian, a Christian that never gets into the Word, uh, can can never be, in Pauline terms, a Spirit-filled Christian. Never. That's that's kind of rhetoric. That's black and white. I'm sure there are exceptions, all right? But what I'm saying is that they're so connected together... um, it is, it is hard to imagine the Spirit of God being in control of a believer in whose life the Word of Christ is not richly dwelling. Nor is it easily conceived to think of somebody in whom the Word of Christ is richly dwelling who's not living under the control of the Spirit. Okay? So, inextricably bound. And so, the Spirit delights to empower the Word of, of the cross... And so, 
when we think about this issue, we have to have a theology of word and spirit which work together. Now, let me just make um, an appeal to both sides and then we'll uh, open this up to destruction. This is just an appeal to both sides. And I'm assuming that by both sides, I mean those that are in the two center columns. I think that's probably where most Christians probably fit in those two center columns, um, not so much the two outward ones. The two outward ones are, in my opinion, fraught with, with difficulties. An appeal to both sides. Number one is that we should affirm, practice, and rely on the sufficiency of the word in, in counseling. Right? So, really, what I'm saying is that regardless of where you, you put yourself in terms of what gifts are operative and so forth, the fact is, as we come to, to counseling, we need to actually affirm practice and rely on the sufficiency of the Word. And I would say that one thing that we have to, um, that, that we should be in agreement on is that the Word of God, the 66 canonical books of our Bible, are actually sufficient as revelation. For us. Now, I, I take that idea simply from the, the opening verses of, of Hebrews, right? So, in the past, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many parts and in many ways. But what? In these last days, so, so this final epoch of, of God's redemptive history, what we saw last night as the time between the first and the second coming, these last days, right? God has spoken to us in His Son. And in fact, the contrast is, in the past, many parts, many ways, God has spoken, Eris participle, to the fathers in the prophets, plural, but then in these last days, there's some Something that's more definitive that's happened. And that definitive thing that's happened is a final revelation of God in His Son. Now, why is this important? Well, because when we go to counseling, I cannot go into a situation thinking that what's going to happen is I'm going to get some revelation for this person. I have revelation for this person. And it's Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22. All right? And the Spirit's got to equip me, give me wisdom to, to know how to do that. But the fact is, I have revelation. What more, we sing this, right? What more can he say than to you he has said? Right? And so if we're going uh, to say that we believe in the sufficiency of the word in counseling, we have to say, listen, God's word is the only revelation that I need to do this. And so John Frame says, when redemption is final, revelation is also final. Right? That's the point of Hebrews 1. When redemption is final, so what, so what does Jesus do? After having made purification for sins, he does what? sits down at the right hand of the Father, of the majesty on high. So, sufficient for revelation. And so, it's also sufficient for birth. So you're, um, and this has come up this weekend a number of times, you're talking to somebody that's unconverted, right? And I I loved Jim's answer in the panel, you know. Um, 
Jim has this this really magnificent way of just sort of encapsulating something and just making it very very plain, very concise, very direct. And I thought thought he did a great job on what do you do when you have an unbeliever who comes in for counseling? Well, you're not just trying to improve, you're just trying to help them be more moral by applying biblical principles, right? Because you could have a homosexual turn straight, and that doesn't ultimately do him any good, right? Um, you could have a person that was bankrupt come in and become, you know, Bill Gates, and they'd still go to hell. And so the idea is <clears throat> that we're actually evangelizing. Well, <laughs> what, what do you need? To actually effectively evangelize that person, you need this book, right? And so people go, well, you know what? If they're an unbeliever and they're coming to you for counseling and you start to try to talk to them about the Bible, uh, they might just say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Or the Bible's not my authority. Or it's a nice book or whatever. But here, here's the reality. You were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, which is the living and abiding Word of God. So the Word of God, actually empowered by the Spirit, has the ability, has the power to actually take a person who's dead in trespasses and sins and brings, bring them to life. And um, actually, you don't, even, you don't even have to spend a whole lot of time telling somebody why the Bible's authoritative. I believe in apologetics, okay? I believe in defending uh, God's truth. But Spurgeon says, defend the Bible? I'd just as soon defend a lion. What do you do with a lion? Open the cage. Open the cage. And so the Word of God is actually sufficient for spiritual birth, okay? And... Um, so Jesus is telling us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, of course, um, the rich man is in agony, and he calls out to Father Abraham, please have Lazarus come and, and dip his finger in the water and put it on my tongue. It's cool me for the agony of these flames. And Abraham says, no, it's not going to happen. And then the rich man says, well, at least send him to go and warn my father and my brothers not to come here. Wow, this is such an uh, important passage. And Father Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe them, they will not believe even if one should come back from the dead. Right? The sufficiency of God's Word. You know, one of the things that I love about our movement, one of the things that I love about what we do, is that we really do have um, an apostolic confidence in the power of God's Word. Right? An apostolic confidence in the power of God's Word. See, by apostolic confidence, I mean the kind of confidence that the apostles had. An apostolic confidence in the power of God's Word. But it's not only sufficient for revelation, for everything that we need, and sufficient for birth, it's also sufficient for life. 
So this, this, is, this is the heart of what we are about. And so Moses could even say at the end of the book of, of Deuteronomy um, that this word which I'm giving to you is your life. And so, in other words, the Word of God is sufficient. At every, at every juncture of redemptive history, God gives His people exactly what they need in order to live of the life of godliness to which He calls them. And so, the Word of God is our life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. For what? For doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. With the, what, What's the end result, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. And so, um, I'm, I'm a Baptist, and I am, I am consciously a Baptist, and Baptists have traditionally been people of the book. And one of the things that we say in our confessions of faith is that the Scripture is wholly sufficient for life and doctrine. Everything that I need to believe is in the book. And everything that I need in order to live the life that God calls me to live has been revealed in the book. And so Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He's given us precious and magnificent promises, all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so, I have here John Frame, who fits in one of those columns. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. That's what we mean by sufficiency. Sufficient for life. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. So, you're talking to somebody who's struggling with with transgenderism. What a modern problem. By the way, what's, what's happening before our very eyes is happening at breakneck speed. If you'll remember just a short uh, six and a half years ago, our president and vice president actually were in favor of uh, traditional marriage and not in favor of same-sex marriage, which I think was probably just a lie, but six and a half years later, not only has the Supreme Court said it's legal now in all 50 states, but that's not even the issue now, right? It's, it's, it's Bruce Jenner, it's transgenderism, it's, it's um, uh, <laughs> kids, that have advocates that say, you know what, if the little boy feels like he's a girl and the little girl feels like she's a boy, then uh, mom and dad ought to be open to therapy and, um, and, and, and sex change. This is insanity, right? It's insanity. You go, wow, all of this is so new. I, I, I imagine that we probably need to think about how to address these issues and uh, where are we going to go to find the answers? <laughs> well, right here. Um, you won't find the word transgender in a concordance, but you will find relevant truth to the issues of transgenderism. 
even with the most basic starting point as this. God made them male and female. This is an unbelievably relevant book. You don't have to labor to make the Bible relevant. It already is relevant. It already is applicable. And so as we come to this, it is sufficient for all of life. And so Wayne Grudem, who fits on another pillar there, the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and obeying Him perfectly. And so everything that you actually need for salvation, and everything you need to trust God, and everything you need to obey God, is right here in the book. So, No matter where you're at on these issues, we need to be absolutely unswervingly committed to bring the authoritative, sufficient word to bear in the counseling situation. We don't rely on human wisdom, superiority of speech, so forth, but we also don't turn around and rely on extraordinary revelation or things like that. And so we affirm, practice, and rely on the sufficiency of the Word. But we also, secondly, affirm, practice, and rely on the sovereign power of the Spirit in counseling. You you have to understand, these things are not mutually exclusive. It's not like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to depend on the Word, or am I going to depend on the Spirit? That's not a choice that you have to make. In fact, we should be affirming that we need to absolutely, utterly rely and depend upon the sovereign spirit as we enter into the counseling session. Now, again, we're not talking about making choices. So it's not like, well, do I believe I should study for a sermon or do I believe I should just trust the spirit? Yes. Right? Right? Now, I study and study hard and then realize that in the act of preaching, the Spirit of God is the one who ultimately matters. Not even my studies, right? Right? But I don't go in presuming, I don't need to study, the Spirit of God's going to tell me everything I need to know right there on the spot. No. He may, now the Spirit will help me in the study. Right? I, I, hope, I hope if you're a pastor, you believe that. Right, Mike? The Spirit helps you in the study. And then the Spirit helps you bring the Word. Right Now, here's the thing. Sometimes God does things that we don't expect. Yeah. Now, this is where some of you are going to get a little nervous. Because affirming... Relying on and practicing a dependence upon the sovereignty of the Spirit of God means that we may also or should also affirm the supernatural and at times extraordinary works of the Spirit. Okay? Now, um, 
Vern Poitras a number of years ago wrote a, a fantastic article about affirming the supernatural works of the spirit within a cessationist framework or something like that. It's like 90 pages. Um, totally worth reading. But let me, just, let me just point out a few things that I hope encourage you. So Charles Spurgeon, flaming charismatic? No. No. Uh, belief in the apostolic office and apostolic gifts having ceased with the la- death of the last apostle? Yes. So Spurgeon, and this didn't happen just once, it just happens to be one of the famous episodes. So Spurgeon's preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And while he's preaching, he does this. There's a young man that is seated in the balcony and you have a pair of gloves in your coat pocket. And you stole those gloves on the way here. Young man, repent and return those gloves. Spurgeon barely even says anything about this event other than there was actually a young man seated in the balcony that had stolen gloves in his coat pocket and was converted on that day. Okay? So... Here, here's, here's the big question. Regardless of where you see yourself uh, on, on, this, on this spectrum, do you actually see that there is room for an absolute, utter, complete confidence in the sufficiency of God's Word, and yet affirming that the Spirit of God can do extraordinary things that go beyond your own human ability? The answer is yes. So the Scottish Covenanters. You ever heard of the Scottish Covenanters? The, uh, they were the, the Scottish Reformed Church in the 1600s. They were persecuted. They were, they, were, uh, they were chased all over Scotland by James I. And uh, oftentimes, and these guys were as reformed as reformed can be. Talk to George Scipione. I'm sure that he's a direct heir of the Scottish Covenanters, although he's Italian. Now... Um, <laughs> He belongs to a denomination that claims direct heirship, right, to the Covenanters. And here were guys that were absolutely in line with Calvin and with Bollinger and these guys. And they would be having meetings in secret and somebody would be preaching and somebody would um, would say, uh, as we flee, we need to actually turn and go west instead of east, and sure enough, they would turn west, and then um, the, uh, the dragoons that were after them would then get lost and caught up in a shroud of fog, and they would escape with their lives. And they had no problem saying that God actually directed us that way supernaturally. What does that look like in, in counseling? Well, as I alluded to this afternoon, there are times where the Spirit of God can, can illuminate as you listen. I mean, bring insight. Um, you know, uh, one of our problems is that sometimes we just think we know what the problem is. Well, I've heard this before, so I know exactly what's going on. And then you start to realize that you don't know what's going on, and the Spirit of God begins to illuminate your own heart and give understanding. Um, or, or what about wisdom? I mean, don't we believe that the Spirit of God actually can give us wisdom, wisdom from the Word, in a way that goes beyond us? 
So here's my mom. She's a brand new Christian. This is about 1977, 78. Brand new Christian. Uh, fresh out of the box. All right? And she, she didn't know anything about the Bible. I mean, just barely from what she'd been reading the last few months. How much of the Bible can you actually learn in a few months? And some Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. And my mom will tell you to this day, those Jehovah's Witnesses had their Bible. Now, did Jehovah's Witnesses know their New World Translation? Well, let me just tell you, they know their New World Translation a whole lot better than my mom knew her Bible. And there she stood, turning to passages that she didn't actually know. If you'd have said, where do you find that passage about in the beginning was the Word? She'd be like... I think I've seen that, but I don't know. Here she is turning to passages that she wouldn't have been able to tell you the address ten minutes before, actually defending the faith to Watchtower Society members. Okay, Does that turn me into a charismatic? And the answer is no. I just think the Spirit of God can do things like that. That's all. One of the things that sort of uh, humors me a little bit about some of the, the discussion that goes on is, for instance, Wayne Grudem, whom I completely, I have tremendous respect for, will tell a story about some supernatural event. So he tells this story, for instance, of this couple that was going to host a home Bible study, and the husband was a construction worker, and he'd always show up late, and, um, and, and then he would go, and he'd shower and eat, and then come in just as everybody was about to leave. And uh, the wife started to get this, uh, this rash, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor sent her to a dermatologist, and they gave her this cream and that cream, and the rash just kept getting worse and worse, and, um, and it, was, it was actually somewhat painful. So one night at the Bible study, she said, would you guys pray for me? I've been going to the doctor. I can't get rid of this rash. And so they said, sure, we'll pray for you. And right before they went to prayer, um, uh, Margaret Grudem, Wayne Grudem's wife, just simply said to her, um, are you struggling with bitterness right now? And Wayne Grudem says, is now, he would say, that was prophecy. I'd say, I think the Spirit of God actually just prompted her in a magnificent, supernatural way. And she starts crying, and she says, yeah. She says, you know, my husband and I signed up for this Bible study. He told me that he would help me. And every single week, he makes it a point to come in late, and I am stuck hosting everybody, doing everything, while he's up there showering, taking his time, eating his dinner, only to come in as you guys are leaving, and I absolutely am so angry about it, I can't see straight. And she said, do you understand that, that that's sin? And she's weeping, and she says, I know. She confesses her sin, and... They pray for her, and the rash goes away. Now, <clears throat> do I think that that happened? And the answer is, yes, I think that happened. Do I think that the Spirit of God was at work in a profound and supernatural way? And the answer is yes. Would I call it prophecy? No. Would I call it some word of knowledge? No. I just think that the Spirit of God just does things that defy our expectations. 
And sometimes um, we're pleasantly surprised by what he does. And so I would say that when it comes to these issues, we need to be counselors. We need to be Christians who are absolutely committed to rely on the Holy Spirit, to have an apostolic confidence in the Word of God, and that the Spirit of God will actually use the Word in amazing ways, and He'll use the Gospel when we don't rely on our own wisdom, our own power, but rely upon Him working through the Word. So... Uh, questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, outbursts, letters to the editor. Good. Let's pray. <laughs> I take that to mean I was so amazingly clear that you're all absolutely persuaded. All right. Well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you so much that um, you do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. We thank you that our efficiency and competency as counselors doesn't rest in us, but it rests in you who equips and gifts us. We thank you for your word and your spirit. We pray, Lord, that we, that we would never divide what you have joined together. We pray that we would rely on your word in such a way that, that, that we see it as beautiful, sufficient, powerful, but that we also rely on the spirit who gave it. We pray that in all these things, Jesus Christ would be praised. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.